0: to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language honest talk about running farms and raising families.
1: In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hello and welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. So Katie, it is birthday season in both of our houses. Does that mean
0: you've had recently had a uh, birthday party for a little person in your home? It does. And um, I'm claiming this moment of genius. I'm claiming it. Instead of taking my now seven-year-old daughter and, you know, having a lot of Her friends also have siblings that are very close in age. It's just kind of a common thing around here. So having a birthday party in our home means, of course, you have to clean. And then you have to have, you know, snacks or lunch or whatever. And then a cake. And then you end up with literally, like, one small children in your house. And for some reason, doing it on Sundays means that dads are in charge, which means that they, like, their kids are lucky if they slow down in the driveway as they're dropping them off, let alone, like, staying apparently in most places people do not just drop children off and bail but in rural iowa they do
1: oh i thought that was normal but maybe that's a
0: rural thing (laughs) i think maybe it is a rural thing
1: (laughs) most of my kids have always had like they know you already so if you're offering to have my kid for a party you can have them
0: (laughs) exactly
1: i'll pick them up on time but uh, i'm not gonna stick around
0: i'll see you on monday um yeah You know, so then you have 20 kids in the house and the dogs are going nuts and the cats are going nuts and there's just children everywhere. And then you have to clean the house again when they leave. And it's a lot.
1: And I have found sometimes it's not that fun for the birthday person either. Yeah. My kids anyway, if I have tried to have more than a handful of kids, they end up stressed and overwhelmed and don't have fun. So it's like, what am I doing this for anyway? Because now they're crying. Because their party didn't turn out the way they thought. And everyone's upset. And I've still got a whole bunch of kids in my house.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, some some special toy gets touched. Or like last year, somebody got their finger slammed in a door. And it yeah. it's not worth it. You know? You have cake crumbs everywhere. And somebody's parents are always late to come get them. And whatever. So this year, we took the birthday girl and two of her little friends and their moms who both, this is the real genius part are both friends of mine as well. The mom's are. Ah, that's the key. This is the the key part. And we went, um, there's a town near here that has a hotel that has a very, very small water park. It's literally one pool that's like a foot deep, one pool that's like three foot deep, and a water slide that none of our kids were willing to go down. And a hot tub. Perfect. <laughs> so we stayed overnight. The kids swam and swam and swam and swam and swam. We ate a shitload of pizza. The girls played. Actually, shockingly, nobody cried. Wow. For a whole day? For a whole day. Yeah. They all had fun. That's amazing. There were only two kids. Their parents were there. Everybody actually slept. Um, It felt like kind of a nice intro into having sleepovers with the kids because the kids are getting old enough to ask for it, but they're not really old enough to feel totally confident about having them at my house overnight um you know so it was kind of a nice middle step um, yeah the girl child got a shit ton of barbies which is good i guess because she's getting a barbie dream house for christmas no idea where we're putting that and if anybody has any tips on putting the damn thing together i'm sure daddy would appreciate it because he seemed to think he wasn't going to have to assemble it. Yeah,
1: Yeah. just don't wait yeah. till Christmas Eve. Yeah, yeah, don't wait till the last minute. But then you have to store it somewhere in the house hidden until,
0: <laughs> until you're ready. Yeah, down. yeah. And that's the problem with these old houses. I don't know what your house is like, Arlene, but we don't have any closets. And the closet in our bedroom is already full of Christmas presents.
1: Yeah, well, we do have closets because we did a renovation and added closets. But they are all full of stuff because the basement gets wet right? So you can't really store anything in the basement. So, But at least in the wintertime when the ground is frozen, the basement is generally a safe place to store things. So we can put things down there for Christmas presents anyway, or I've got some shelves down there that I can keep things for short amounts of time.
0: Yeah. Maybe I'll uh, see if we can commandeer the guest room over at my in-laws for a couple of days and assemble it over there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Just barricade it. I see that you are not in your normal recording place, Arlene. Do you want to tell us about your birthday kid? Yeah, so I... Birthday adult, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so, well, birthday kids, because I had three in the last three weeks. Yeah, so the one we went to an Arcade with him and a couple of, three of his close friends, Um, the one who just turned 18, I'm on my way to go pick her up from her last exam. Uh, So, it's Monday that we're recording, and she has her last exam today, so I actually went And visited my sister, who doesn't live all that far away from where she goes to university. So then I didn't have to do all the driving in one day. And I know my kid could have taken public transportation, but she's going to be home for almost a month. So had a bunch of stuff she wanted to bring home. And I didn't have too much going on over the next couple of days. So I offered to come and get her and then we'll probably do some Christmas shopping on the way home too, because then we'll actually hit real shopping malls instead of just small town stores. Not anything against small town stores, they're great, but sometimes the people on your list require things that you can only find in a mall. And yeah, and then the youngest who turned 9, we had a little birthday party. We're supposed to be four kids, ended up with three because one was sick. Um, but that is a good number for us because you can do kind of an activity, you can kind of keep them channeled a little bit. So, with my December birthdays I've often done gingerbread houses, which is kind of something fun for them to take home. And then that's kind of their loot bag as well. And my genius strategy is to always assemble the gingerbread houses at least a day or two before the party. So the kids decorate the houses. They don't put together the houses because once they start slamming candy and icing on those
0: things, they need to have structural integrity
1: that (laughs) does not always come from children assembling.
0: So it must be the week for gingerbread houses. My friend Rachel, who listens to the show. Hi, Rachel. Um, went to visit her folks and her in-laws who live in the same town, and her, I believe her mother-in-law sent her mom or her mother-in-law, whatever, one of the grandmas, sent home homemade gingerbread house kits. So she had made, you know, the panels and she'd drawn the doors and the windows on, and they were all laid flat. So same that they could just assemble and decorate and not have to do the whole, you know, baking and all that, because Rachel's boys are uh six and four, I wanna say, five and you know, small, young. um, But apparently Rachel's husband missed the memo that these were special cookies for a special purpose and ate one and part of another wall of these houses. So I don't know. Oh, no. That makes it very
1: difficult to assemble.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And when pressed about it, he said something about, you know, well, it was delicious, I guess, and, you know, that he just hadn't really considered why there was a tray of, <laughs> of of shapes and wall-shaped pieces with windows drawn on them. So, Aaron is a lovely and delightful and thoughtful man who apparently just really likes cookies and didn't really...
1: Wasn't quite as thoughtful in that moment. Yeah,
0: got swept up in the excitement of cookies which has happened to all of us.
1: That is true. Yeah, it happens for sure. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else has been going on this week. It feels like a whole lot of everything and nothing at the same time. I think I already mentioned I uh, ended up saying yes to a volunteer assignment. So a friend and I are in charge of running the school uh, turkey dinner this week. So uh, there's a lot of logistics running through my head about that. Um, So we don't have to do well, we're doing some of the work. The school secretary is fantastic and she's doing a lot of the work as well, but yeah, lots of uh, things to figure out to cook for a crowd. I think our total number is 380 in two sittings. So, um, yeah, lots of turkey and ham and other things to make sure it all get prepped and put out and served to lots of little people. So, that will be exciting. It's a annual tradition my It's one of those small town things, right? Maybe your husband too. My kids go to the same school that my husband went to. So they've been having a turkey dinner at least since he was there 40 plus years ago. So
0: we're just trying to keep the tradition alive. Around here there are, yeah, uh, ham dinners, ham ball dinners, fish dinners, and pancake breakfast.
1: What is a ham ball?
0: Oh, a ham ball. It's uh, ground ham and ground pork. And some people use graham crackers. Some people use, it's It's like meatloaf made with ham and it's, they're goddamn delicious. Is it in a ball form? Yes. Yes. Otherwise it would be a ham loaf.
1: Okay. And it's hot?
0: Yeah. It's like a meatball, but it's made of ham.
1: Okay. Is it hot or cold?
0: Hot. Okay.
1: So, okay. So it's a meatball, but is it large and you slice it or they're literally like meatballs?
0: No, it's like a meat, like literally a meatball. Okay. But made of ham. Got it. And it's usually served with uh funeral potatoes, which is a less than delightful name for a thoroughly delightful dish, which is uh hash browns, sour, I'm guessing potatoes with a lot of dairy. Yeah. Well, I mean it's normally served at funerals or weddings or uh we some people call them party potatoes. I guess it depends on whether you're at a party or a funeral, as to what you call them, but it's...
1: Sure, yeah, a bit less grim.
0: Yeah. Shredded potatoes and enough dairy to possibly cause you to be the next one to require a pan of funeral potatoes. But they are damn good. But we have a lot of pancake breakfasts around here. Every every fire department has a pancake breakfast in the spring to raise money. And that's, you know, you kind of got to pregame some pancakes through the winter to be prepared because you know <laughs> you gotta really carve it up
1: okay and with real syrup or uh, fake syrup like maple syrup or whatever that other stuff is
0: well this is the other thing the closest neighbor down the road from us is I believe the oldest continually family operated business in the state of Iowa they're a sugar bush that does pancake breakfast twice every spring it's green sugar bush for anybody in the area pancakes are delicious, and they're worth waiting hours in line for. Uh, those come with real syrup. Most, all the rest of them come with brown corn syrup flavored, whatever. But you will get your choice of whole milk or whole milk or sometimes chocolate milk or burned coffee at all pancake breakfasts. That is a, a staple, and applesauce for yeah, yeah, it's delightful. No. Other than that, our uh, our Christmas tree got knocked over this week. Oh, good. In the the middle of the day while the carpenters were here and my father-in-law was here and all my glass ornaments got broken. So that's great. Oh, no. Yeah. That sucks. I just
1: saw online that the Christmas tree farm that we have not yet gone to to get our tree because we were waiting until my daughter got home so we could go together and, you know, Make Memories is closed for the season because they're already sold out. So now we have to find another Christmas tree farm. So maybe we'll have a tree. I'm sure we'll find one somewhere. It might not be the most majestic, but there will be a tree eventually.
0: Other other genius moment last year, the girl child begged for a like three-foot-tall tinsel tree from Walmart. It's rainbow-colored. It has LED lights. She has used it as a, as a nightlight almost every night for the last year. Because it's LED, it doesn't get hot, it's pretty, it's it's fun colors. Oh, sweet. It's festive. Yeah. Yeah. And that one has not been knocked over and broken with a seven-foot-tall tree and broken glass everywhere. And my daughter's cat sitting there going, no, I have no idea how that happened. Yeah, it definitely wasn't me. Definitely wasn't me. She's, you know, picking pine needles out of her fur. Yeah. No idea how that happened. Boom. Yeah. All right. Well, should
1: we welcome our guest for this week? Sounds good. So today we are excited to be talking to Tiffany Baxter, and I think her cat, from what I can hear in the background, who's joining us from Oklahoma. So Tiffany, we start each of our interviews with the same question, which is, what are you growing? So for farmers, that covers crops and livestock, but it can also be businesses and careers and all kinds of other stuff. So Tiffany, what are you growing?
2: So much. I am growing honeybees, poultry this very obnoxious cat behind me. I'm so sorry. That's all right. We also have dogs, so cats and dogs, but I've got uh, registered shorthorn cattle, purebred shorthorn cattle. And then I have some UK Gloucestershire old spots as well. And I'm growing a couple businesses.
1: Very cool. So can we have some numbers? I'm guessing you probably have the most bees.
2: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I lost most of my colonies in 2021. We had a really, really bad winter that year. So I've been rebuilding since. I have somewhere around 40 or 50 hives right now. And um, I've got 10 head of cattle. I've got nine pigs right now, one that's pregnant. So we're going to have some more. And eight little goats. And I don't know how many head of poultry. I've kind of got a little bit of everything on the
1: poultry side yeah you don't need to do a head count all the time right
0: i feel like dairy farmers might be the only ones who have a pretty consistent handle on how many animals they have Early,
1: hopefully most beef farmers know approximately how many cows they have but
0: well i mean ballpark yeah but
1: yeah we do keep a pretty especially the ones who are milking keep a pretty uh consistent you know you want to make sure you milk the same number every day so yeah that's kind of important
0: Well, especially if they're in tie stalls. Yeah, that's true. I feel like hopefully you would notice if one went missing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. She's not too far away. (laughs) So Tiffany, before we go any further, I managed to restrain myself about asking before we started recording, tell us about your shirt. I know, Arlene, it's not a visual medium, but Tiffany's wearing a shirt that says real big, 0% vegan on the front. And Tiffany, I hope it's from your business because I'm going to order one because that's awesome. So tell us about it, because this is this is amazing.
2: They're on my website, and um, so I was getting a lot of hate emails and comments from some vegans. I Ironically, I was getting death threats from vegans, and I was like, I mean, that could just be a t-shirt. I, I think they want to be mad at me. That's fine. I can... We can... We can go back we can go back and forth here. Um they they're selling really well, actually. Good. You know, I have to be careful though where I wear it because even in Oklahoma, like we have certain areas of the younger crowds. I'm like, oh, someone's gonna like go key my truck or something. Um but really it's supposed to be funny. It's got my little logo on the sleeve. It's just gray with um black lettering says zero percent vegan for those of you who can't see it, but um, I think they're 1999 on my website, and they'll ship straight to you. I've also got some cute little hats with my logo on there um, for people if they want to
0: you know support a mobile butcher in Oklahoma. I mean, I have to say we're real big on animal welfare. I'm totally support people eating whatever the hell they want. But when they start sending death threats over pigs, that's too far. That is just too far. So anyway.
2: Right. I and mean, when they treat it like a religion, I think that's where I get upset. Eat whatever you want. I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to push meat on you. Um, so don't push your no meat agenda on me. Like we can, I actually have a massage therapist that I see weekly and I adore. And she's vegetarian. I've got multiple vegetarian people, ironically, in my life. And we totally respect each other's views and we just, we don't need to argue about it. Like, that's just your choice. This is my choice. That's that, you know, we're not going to argue over animal abuse. That's, that's not, that's not what's happening. (laughs) And most vegetarians actually agree with my way of doing things. That's the hilarious part. I'm like, we don't like corporate farming either. You know, that's why I do what I do is, you know to give them the most humane and most ethical way um, of slaughter. And I think if vegans maybe put their attentions in the right place instead of coming after like us little people, because, you know, we're the easy target for sure. Like you can you can send a bunch of vegans on my page and put zero, re- you know, one-star reviews and that will affect my business. That will hurt me. Um, but you do that to like Tyson or like Pilgrim's Pride or someone someone up there, you know, that's much larger, much, uh, they're, they're doing so much damage really. Um, they're not going to get anywhere with that, you know, like that's not going to ever hurt them. Those people, they're multi-billionaire companies, they're, they're not going anywhere. And
1: even, and the same way too, the, you know, the death threats or the nasty emails or the nasty comments, it's a real person reading them, not, not a, not someone in a in a PR department who just blocks and deletes people or they just go to a spam folder like you're an actual human who has to read that garbage and that's yeah
0: that's not okay for you either.
2: No. It's not okay it's not okay for anybody.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and two, I think we can agree that sending death threats is not a reasonable way to change somebody's mind. I mean, I don't I know quite a few farmers who've gotten death threats now and I don't know any of them that have stopped farming. Because of it, uh, it's you know, yeah. Anyway, so back to what's actually on our on our agenda here. I just if somebody's going to rock up in a shirt like that, I'm going to talk about it. So, oh, hey, it's my question too. Uh, <laughs> woo! So, Tiffany, what is your background in agriculture, and where did you grow up? So, um, funny story is I don't really have a
2: big background in agriculture. Um, I'm first generation. My dad's from New York. He hates agriculture and would remind me all through my childhood. Um, I think probably where it stems for me is my grandfather had this just massive garden growing up. You know, we would go outside, we'd pick cantaloupes and we'd we'd eat cantaloupe. And so he passed when I was nine. And I started, after he passed, I started my own little you know, small vegetable garden, raised in vegetable garden. And then um fast forward a few years, you know, I'd been growing these vegetables for a while and we're eating it, you know, at the dinner table, which is so rewarding, even especially as a little kid. Um, and then fast forward to junior high, ag ed is offered in ninth grade. Well, funny story. My principal of that junior high actually did not want me to take that class because I was the only one who wanted to take it. And they would have to bus me to the high school every day. So she actually pulled me into the principal's office. I was all scared. I thought I was in trouble or something. And she tries to talk me out of ag ed, which is FFA, you know, here in the States, and She said, oh, kids just take this as a blow off class, you know, and you have to show up 30 minutes early to school to take the bus, which meant I was going to have to walk to school because my bus wasn't going to get there early enough to drop me off to my next bus. I got to drive. I got to ride the short bus that whole year back and forth to the high school and I got made fun of so badly because I'm, I'm riding the short bus because they're all, they're not going to give me a full size bus for one student. Um, and I remember that whole year I wore my FFA jacket to school every, t- like every chance I got. And I would put like every blue ribbon on her desk and every, um, award I ever got on her desk, right in front of her face, just to prove a point. And ended up um, from there showing pigs, showing cows, and then fast forward from there buying some property and starting with chickens, like like everyone does, right? And then that's the gateway drug.
1: Yeah, definitely the the and the chicken math, right? Where you start with a few, and like you said, all of a sudden you lose track of how many you've got.
0: <laughs>
2: you you really do
0: though. So you said you grew up in New York State. No, my dad did. Um, I grew up here in Oklahoma. I think that's just... Well, I was going to ask how the hell you ended up in Oklahoma from New York State. <laughs> because, I mean, Oklahoma, I've been there a couple times. Seems like a nice place. Seems like nice folks. But it does not seem like a, a destination, necessarily. <laughs> I'm trying to put it nicely. I don't want the folks of Oklahoma to come send me death threats either. No, no, no.
2: It's okay. People from Oklahoma just never leave Oklahoma. That's, that's the rule you, and the only way you end up, like you don't choose Oklahoma, you end up in Oklahoma. Um, And I think that's what happened to my dad. He was in the air force and he just ended up here and then he, he stayed. So he married my mom and they're, you know, they're still together. So funny story. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So here they are. So that leads into some of the livestock. But how did you end up with bees, too? I know, you know, like it feels like bees are one of the obviously I know they're really important in agriculture. And yet I feel like I hardly know anything about bees. So how how did that start?
2: Yeah. Um. So the first thing I did and really, if you read a lot of homesteading books like I was, they tell you the first thing to do when you get your your property is to go ahead and plant fruit trees, right? Because fruit trees take so long to establish. And so this was in a period of my life when I was like living at the library. Like it was, I was listening to audiobooks to and from work and I was reading books and my downtime at work and at home. And I was really absorbing all of that. And I know that fruit trees require pollination um, in order, like heavy pollination to be precise, like for any kind of fruit. So I thought, well, I could just get a couple beehives, right? Well, do you know how easy it is to just order a couple beehives online and buy all the equipment and it all just shows up at your house? And then then um, you have to figure out what to do with it. Right. And then I just fell in love with it. It's just, it's so something about honeybees. um, There's documentary on Netflix about honeybees. And one of the first things he says is that you know, there's something romantic about it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that really nails, like, the feeling about working bees. It is this, like, romance to it. It's very, um, I don't know, there's something about the buzzing of the bees and just the, the frequency, the vibration, you know, it's, it's awesome. There's no words for it. If you've never had bees, I highly recommend you get some.
1: So other than ordering all the stuff off the Internet, what is your what would be your suggested other starting point if someone is thinking about getting into bees?
2: Oh, yeah. If you want to become a beekeeper, um, definitely do a little research because you're going to have to make some decisions as to like what kind of beekeeper you want to be. Do you want to be a treatment free beekeeper? You're going to lose a lot, a lot of hives that way. Or do you want to be a treatment beekeeper? Are you going to treat for mites? Uh, That's really the biggest one you're going to have to decide. I would recommend finding local clubs. Um, Most local clubs have like a Facebook group. Most of them have some sort of online presence where you can also like meet in person and online and ask questions. Um, And if you can find someone who's doing your style of beekeeping that you choose, whether treatment free or not, um, and get that person to let you work their hives with them, mentor let you find yourself a mentor. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, if you can get someone to mentor with, I think that's the best way because hands on experience, um, it it wins every time. You know, I teach classes and I teach hands on classes. I can sit and lecture people on bees all day long and show you photos of like this is pollen, this is honey, this is larvae. But I swear when you get in that hive like you're not going to know anything you're going to you're going to forget everything you saw in that classroom you need you need to have someone who's experienced that can physically point those things out to you once you see it in person you're going to go oh okay you know that's what a queen look like looks like you know that's probably the biggest thing beginners struggle with is just identifying what's in the hive identifying the queen so if you have someone there to point those things out to you um it's super beneficial
0: Well, and that seems pretty true of most farming, but I guess maybe it's a little harder to identify who the beekeepers are in your neighborhood too, unless their hives are like up by the road. Um, So speaking of bees, I have to say that I think my personal feeling is that the best way to keep bees is to get somebody else to keep bees on your property because then you get the pollination, you get honey, and you don't have to do any of the work Except, so I see here that you do honeybee removal, which is a, a topic close to my heart after a drought summer. We have a number of hives on our property from a local apiary, and this summer it didn't rain for like three months, so they got real hungry. So they started swarming my hummingbird feeders. And after speaking to a beekeeper friend, I put out some sugar water, because they were hungry. And what I didn't really think about was that I would not be feeding the bees that were currently at my house. I would be feeding all the bees. The neighborhood bees. All (laughs) of them. And there's a lot. And I had no idea how much sugar water they would go through or what it would be like trying to take work meetings with approximately 8 billion bees literally on my office window like directly behind my monitor just buzzing all day (laughs) and asking for Um, more water yeah and
2: you're feeding every hive within a three mile radius,
0: (laughs) and they start climbing on you which i feel like you know people are afraid of bulls but i feel like we are more consistently raised to be afraid of bees and i have to say at least the bees in our neighborhood are probably the fattest laziest things in the world because they were just, like, falling on me and then walking around and falling off, you know. Probably so full of sugar water that they couldn't fly anymore.
2: They were probably trying to dry off, yeah. Did you have something for them to land on?
0: Yes, yes. Oh, they had rocks and they had twigs, and these are the best. No, I... And stupidly, once they (laughs) overtook... You provided a lovely landing site for them. Well, once they overtook the first pan of sugar water, I put out another one because clearly these bees would split in half. It wasn't that I would then end up with twice as many fucking bees. <laughs> um, and they really don't get the message about going home either once they, they find the sugar water. It was quite a battle there for a while. Um, thankfully it rained and then there was more water and I think their people put some, some food out for them and they went back. Um, anyway, honeybee removal, how does that work?
2: It's really kind of simple. Um, so if you've got a hive in your wall, I'm just going to cut open that area of your wall between whatever studs are there. Um, I try to replicate the hive exactly the way it was in the wall into a box. So honey excluded the honey. You kind of got to separate it for later and I feed it back to them, but I take all the nest, all the brood. And I don't use a bee vacuum. I'm very anti-bee vacuum unless I absolutely have to use it. Like if I'm doing it from the inside of your house and bees are flying inside your house, I don't have much option but to use it. But otherwise, I try to do every removal I can from the exterior so that we don't have that problem and I don't have to use a vacuum. Um, essentially, I, you know, once you get all that comb out of there, somewhere throughout the process, I'm going to find the queen or hopefully find the queen. Um, I put her in a little clip that only she can get in and out of, or only she um, can't get in and out of. Sorry. The other bees can get in and out of, but there's little slats in it that are just too small for her big butt to squeeze through. So um, that protects her, but it also just keeps her from leaving. And essentially, I leave that box with all the brood comb in it and the queen in it as close to where they were entering, where their entrance was. And then I leave it until nightfall, and then I come back at nightfall, and I just pick it up, put it back in my truck, and I'm out of there. Um, and that way, we ensure we get all the bees, um, including... And I do it at night because all the bees are home. Um, hopefully, they're not, you know, at Katie's house drinking sugar water. And <laughs> we... You know, during the day, you can't take the hive because 30 or 40 percent are still out foraging. So I have to wait till nightfall. It is like a two-step process. Um, if it's a really, really big hive and there's a lot of honey, I might leave that box there for a couple of days and let them clean up, like any honey that dripped on the walls or in that cavity. Um, but it's fairly, fairly easy process now that I've done it for 10 years. You know, the first couple of years were hell.
0: So what are the the first... I don't want to say warning signs because bees are a blessing, but the first things people might notice, we uh, had a hive in a wall at my Nana's house that wasn't discovered until honey started coming out of the wall of the spare bedroom. Um, because, you know, my Nana was elderly and didn't go upstairs and somebody went into the spare room one day and there was literally honey seeping through the plaster at which point, you know, it's, it's messy and it's, You know, that's not the way you'd want to find out about an issue. No. No, and through
2: plaster, that's impressive. That's heavy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, typically, so I do tell people you would rather have a live hive than a dead hive in your walls. So um, I just assume everyone tries to kill them before I get there, but I'm just going to preface this by saying don't do that because that's how you end up with honey dripping down your walls is because you killed the bees and now it's 100 degrees in that attic or in that wall space. And then all of that comb that was being kept at a perfect temperature by the honeybees themselves, now it's hot. And what does hot wax do? It melts. And then hundreds of pounds of honey now are falling and breaking open and seeping into your walls and causing thousands of dollars worth of damage. So for those people listening, like, if you know you got a beehive, hive, just call beekeeper. Just just do that. Don't try to DIY it. Don't end up in the hospital. I I deal with that all the time, especially since there's a viral TikTok lady who does bee removals with like no protection on. So I started doing a couple videos showing what it really looks like. <laughs> Which occasionally you do get a hive that's super nice and sweet, but but most of the time they're not. Um But the question was, how, like, what are the warning signs? So, if your house, and it doesn't matter if it's new or old, um, know where those vacant, those void spaces are. It's most likely you're going to be your soffits and your subfloors. If they're not sealed, and most soffits on brand new houses are not sealed. And so, it gives all sorts of insects and then later on, birds and squirrels access to your attic. Um, and that's going to cause you issues in the future anyway. So you should seal those up. I don't know why these people build houses and they do not seal these soffits. Like it's the perfect little runway into the attic for honeybees. Um, so check those spaces and, and definitely seal them off. Um, and then when it comes to like your subfloors, same thing. If you do get in there and do a bee removal, Make sure you do the necessary things to prevent another one from coming in. So if you put some insulation, some fiberglass insulation in those void spaces, that will also keep them from building a nest because they won't have anywhere to build a nest. Like you've just filled that space that they would have otherwise used to build their home. Um, You know, you're typically not even going to see it until they've been there for a while. Because when they first move in, you see one bee at a time coming and going and then after year two, you're seeing a dozen at a time coming and going, you know, people often call me and they're like, I'll ask them, well, how long have they been there? And they're like, oh, we just noticed them last week. And then I get in there. I'm like, that's a five-year-old hive, my friend. So, you know, most people don't walk around their house and look up, which I can't do right now because my neck is thrown out. But um, walk around your house in the spray, you know, look up, look at your soffits, look at your sun floors. Um, the faster you can catch it, the least amount of damage there's going to be. And there's going to be a lot of damage.
0: So are bees kind of like mice that if you see one in your house, there's probably a thousand of them or so?
2: Yeah, so you're only seeing the foragers coming and going. You have to know, and that's what happens when people try to spray them, is they try to spray the bees that are coming and going. Well, only 30 or 40% of your hive is out foraging during the day. And you spraying... Five or ten bees at a at a time. When the average beehive is twenty two thousand bees, and if you don't destroy that queen bee, you're doing nothing. And even further from that, even if you did find the queen bee, you killed the queen bee. If there was larvae still in there, there were fresh eggs. She can be, the, those worker bees. If there's enough of them, and they have enough honey to sustain themselves. They're just going to make a new queen and they're going to keep going. And a lot of times people will mess with them. And so they might abandon um, a soffit area. And all you did was piss them off and move them up into the attic space. I see that all the time. I'm like, oh, so you tried to mess with them. They're like, yeah, they're gone. But now they're over here. <laughs> they're like they just moved on
1: you. Yeah, they just slightly shifted to another zone. Like, you didn't really make any impact at all.
2: Exactly. So mm-hmm. call a
1: professional. I think when it comes to bees, that I would always want to call a professional because I know they're small. But yeah, I'm I'm definitely one of those people who's intimidated by stinging stinging creatures. Um. So you're doing all the hard stuff. It seems like so you're both a beekeeper and a butcher, like you mentioned earlier. So what brought you into being a butcher and a mobile one at that? That's not that's not the easiest way to get into
2: the into the, your field. No, I definitely took like a job that was hard and made it harder because I'm a masochist apparently. Um, (laughs) So I bought this property, you know, we were talking about, I started the garden, I started the bees, you know, I started the little, a little mini orchard that died just a few years later. Unfortunately, they're very hard to keep. So you got lots of pollinators, but no fruit trees left. Yeah, that's the irony is I started the bees for the fruit trees and then I never, like the fruit trees never did anything. They unfortunately just flooded out so many times I gave up. Um, But, you know, then I started getting into poultry. That was my, that was the gateway into livestock. Um, Although I did have a little bit of experience with like pigs and cattle showing, you know, as a kid, as a teenager. Um. I got into chickens. And one of the first things that you're going to run into if you start raising chickens is you got too many roosters. And what happened to me is I actually did what every person probably does is I went onto a hatchery site and which I'm so against now. That's what's so funny. But it was my first time I buy, you know, 25 pullets. Well, one of them, of course, was a rooster and a mean one at that. And so The first one, I made a deal with myself. I don't know if you ever do this. I made a deal with myself. I said, I'm not ready to do this right now. I was like, but this is the last time. This is the only time and the last time I will allow myself to give away an animal that would have otherwise gone in my freezer. So I didn't have the cojones to do it uh, that first time. Um, But then the funny thing getting into meat birds I was reading like Joel Salatin's pastured poultry for profit and I happened to be in a tractor supply you know getting some feed for my little egg layers and they have meat chickens on sale on clearance and they're like 99 cents a chicken I'm going oh yeah and they had a whole bunch of them and I was just like and they made a deal for me you know to just buy the whole thing the whole container which by the way Of course they did. Which, of course they did. Yeah, of course they did.
0: Yeah. What I love is they probably had like 10 more containers in the back. They're like, we're going to sell these to this sucker. And we were going to sell these birds for 50 cents each. But now we're going to sell them for a dollar each. And we're going to tell her she's getting a deal. You know how many birds we could sell like that? You know, they have like some corporate hatchery boardroom just planning this shit up with the chicken math. They're like, do you know how easy these people are? They'll do anything.
2: If they would have told me they had more in the back, I probably would have bought them. I, I I, went home. I shit you not. I went home with 140 of these broiler chickens, which again, that's another thing I don't do anymore. I won't do the, the Cornish cross, but I took home 140 chickens that day and I spent the rest of the day making them a very large brooder in my garage and um, I learned a lot of lessons on that first batch of chickens I think I actually got to butcher like 30 of them um, the neighbor's dogs took out all the rest that first year yeah and then I took out the neighbor's dogs that's how that went so but I did get to learn how to butcher and I was on YouTube Um, at the time I was butchering so I got off work it was late and I didn't really have days off so I didn't have a lot of time I was like you know what screw it I'm just gonna do it at night don't recommend this by the way (laughs) all the things not to do (laughs) you should not be using sharp objects at night but it was easy to catch them I was like well they're already they're easy to catch at that point so I'm catching and they're huge these I I kid you not, they dressed out at like eight pounds. I, I overgrew them so badly.
1: And you're probably putting off slaughter too, right? You're like, I can't give these away, but I really still don't want to kill them.
2: Well, and so many, well, so many of them were like injured from this dog stuff that I was mm-hmm. like, I had treated a couple of them and I knew like we had to wait so many days. There's a withdrawal period before I'm going to eat that. So they end up just being like turkey size. And, um, i I remember i think i rewinded this youtube video at least a thousand times it took me all night
0: but i butchered 30 chickens
2: in one night
0: yeah what's bad too is that at that (laughs) point you've selected for like the biggest meanest wiliest chickens the you know the survivors the ones that survived the attack (laughs) and then you're gonna pit yourself against them that's horrible and for a minute, I thought you meant that you started with butchering out the neighbor's dog. And I was like, okay, now that's too far. But <laughs> like, you know, shoot, Shovel and shut up. Okay, but butchering is a little, that's a little much. Um, so, how did you get from a YouTube video in 30 Chickens to being on a podcast telling us about it? Right, okay, so... There's this is a petty story. Um
2: you guys are gonna laugh. I actually at this point, this becomes a whole business, by the way. This chicken thing, of course, I took it all the way because my personality is zero or one hundred. It's a disease. It is what it is at this point. I've just embraced it. So I'm like, this is a full business now. So I started buying and butchering a hundred chickens at a time and selling the meat. And I started doing turkeys for Thanksgiving, found out I love turkeys. They're amazing. And I think my biggest year I did like 275 turkeys. And so this became a yearly thing. People would order this these birds for me in advance, put deposits down, whatever. And this went on until I think it was 2018. I had a really bad year in 2018. Birds dying right out of the hatchery. Um you know, at this point I had switched to like a ranger type chicken, but I was still doing broad-breasted turkeys and I had just a terrible year with that. And then on top of that, whenever I would butcher, so say I was butchering, um, chickens on, it was usually like on Sundays. Cause again, I was a bartender. Um, I would open it up on Facebook as an event. I would say, Hey, if you've got like any spare roosters, you need processed, like, I've got the equipment out doing an extra 10 birds or five birds for people as a service. I'm not really making a lot of money, but it's like this great service. It's great community. It's good networking. Um, and and to me, I looked at it as even at $5 a bird, like it was helping going towards. Okay, that was weird. I don't know what just happened. Um, Oklahoma has the strictest poultry laws in the country. And so we actually tried to get the poultry laws changed after this lady had about five or six of us shut down for processing poultry. Right. Um, Which the irony is we were like giving this lady business and we were sending people, cause she's two hours away. Like if somebody called me from two hours away, I'm like, go to this person, not me. Well, whenever we couldn't get the laws changed, uh, my attitude problem kicked in and I was like, you know, if you can't beat them, just join them. So then then I'm building a mobile poultry processing unit. That's okay. how that started. Now at this point, we went from an entire poultry business and just kind of butchering for people here and there to screw that. We're gonna do a full-fledged mobile put like mobile poultry unit. But then that really didn't make sense when you started running the numbers. And so Again, I probably have a little ADHD. And so this sprung into, well, we could do pigs and goats. And if I'm going to build something to lift a pound pig, I'm going to do a 600-pound steer. And I think everybody probably thought that I was joking until I did it. So here we are. <laughs> I just, I just did my first bison, you know, I'm doing um, beef, pork, lamb, and goat. Um, ironically, I'm only doing poultry as a class. Um, you know, the law that she had us on was this. You cannot charge someone to butcher their chicken for money. However, you can butcher their chicken for free and charge them for the bag you put it in. That's the law she had us on and so, you know, I was like, you know what? It's fine. I'm not making great money on butchering other people's chickens anyway. You know, it was an easy way for me to just, like, exit the poultry scene and move on to bigger and bigger, better things. So, honestly, she did me a favor. I should I should send her a shirt and a thank you card for all of her inspiration. But she is still trying to shut people down, doing multiple things in the poultry industry Um, And it's something like I have no problems talking about because it's bullshit. Like we should be working together (laughs) and we can get so much further when we work together. Yeah, Especially as women in this industry, like we are so few and far between. Um, And, you know, we have to work so much harder. Truly. Which is why it's kind of refreshing to be here with two women. I'm normally talking to men. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I get laws that protect people
1: in terms of food safety. Obviously, we all want people to eat food that's safe and healthy and that is not going to make them sick. But laws that are just about shutting people down who are going outside of the system. That's yeah, that's the bullshit stuff, right? Where it's it's not about protecting the industry. It is about protecting industry versus protecting people's health and safety, because those are two completely different things.
2: Right. And the state knew what I was doing. They had come and inspected my equipment. They told me to keep logs, you know. And since these were their chickens going for their consumption, um, they weren't selling this meat. There were no issues legally. They're really, it's literally that phrase, it wasn't a problem until it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, there was a lady that even got like a $10,000 grant to buy poultry processing equipment, to process poultry for other people from the state of Oklahoma. She was shut down.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because one department thought that's a great business idea. But somebody else was like, oh, it breaks
2: a rule. It makes literally no sense whatsoever.
1: Yeah. So now that you're not doing chickens, what does your mobile processing unit look like? Like what does like I'm having a hard time picturing you know how you're processing a bison out in somebody's uh backyard and doing it you know obviously you have all those all that health and safety you know all the the rules that we all need to follow so we have health and you know healthy
2: food to eat afterwards but how, how do you do that on the road right there's a couple of good pictures and videos on like my tiktok facebook instagram all that good stuff but to get like paint you a visual um so typically i show up let's say it's a cow Um, I don't necessarily need them pinned up. I just need to be able to get to them, you know, safely and either get the animal to the trailer or the trailer to the animal. So if I put that animal down in an area I can't get to get the trailer to, um, typically we will drop and drag. So that animal goes down, I'll slit its throat. We get it to the trailer as quickly as possible where I can hoist it up vertically. Um, I do have a hoist off the back side of that. It's about 11 feet tall. I wanted 12. But I got eleven, so um, I get I can get it up that tall. And that's where I'll skin it and gut it. Um, and I've actually changed. I used to skin on the ground. That's what most butchers do. And I started skinning vertically. It's it's helping my lower back <laughs> immensely. Um, so I'll skin and gut, and then I quarter it off of the back end. You know, I wash it off. I have water on the on the trailer. Um, I've got full electric on the trailer. And from there, I will cut that carcass, just like any other butcher, into quarters. And I have a rail that goes all the way down the center of the trailer. So from there, I've got winches kind of everywhere, essentially. And I can get them onto the cut table. I've got bandsaws, vacuum sealers, grinders, everything that a regular butcher shop would have. Um, I've got AC. I've got heat, even though I'm never going to use the heat alone. And essentially... I will just shut those doors whenever it comes time to butcher. That way we don't have any flies coming and going or any kind of dust. Um, you know, if the weather's just right, you could sometimes leave those doors open and it's nice. But um, everything goes back to the customer vacuum sealed, um, ground goes into tubes, and, and I still do a full custom order. So they can fill out a cut sheet just like any other shop. Um, and then from there, they can age it in packages, which is called wet aging. Um, And they can do that multiple ways. They can do it in their own refrigeration um, for as long as they like so they have complete control of that process. And then I wash out on every farm before I leave. That leaves me with no issues as far as like biosecurity. And I really started doing that just because I also raise livestock. You know, my biggest concern is that I'm going to bring home something in, you know, fecal matter. I stepped in something in my boots so like those boots stay on that truck um, they stay on the trailer by washing before and after every job so um, that's essentially the whole process and every animal you know just depends as far as how long it takes I might be there all day I might be there for three hours but I might be there until after dark you just don't know
0: so I have what might be a, a stupid question here but I'm just gonna I'm gonna talk right over Arlene because I need to know um, with that much weight on the back of your trailer when you're hoisting, say, a, a steer, which is a, a sizable thing, are you leaving your truck hooked up or what's holding the front end of the trailer down? Because I'm just, I'm just picturing, you know, <laughs> the whole thing just womp backward. Uh, yeah, it's
2: still hooked to the truck for one. Um, but I also installed extra jacks, and I reinforced the back side of that trailer. So you can't see it, but underneath the trailer, we welded multiple, um, there's multiple area, like multiple points that we reinforced with steel. So um, the whole, because the trailer is aluminum. So my concern is that the trailer was going to start twisting at some point. But I actually worked with an engineer on that. We put jacks on the back side, which the funny thing is that's probably what Sam did in the tornado. I went to a job in April and to butcher a bull. And I was, as I was finishing up, we got hit by a tornado. And um, so the trailer's so well reinforced that when I walked outside, like it it was still there, it had rocked a little bit, but um, it was still attached to the truck. The generator was still running when I went outside. It was unbelievable. So um, I'd say that that was probably the ultimate um, t- like structural test I could have
0: ever put on the trailer and it
2: it passed so pretty amazing
0: I love these sort of background things because it's not like you can call up a Luma line and be like hey you know I need one for butchering cattle in like that's not just a stock trailer they sell um so go ahead Arlene I don't know if your question was going to be
1: yeah so the question I had was about the non meat parts of the animal, like what are you I'm guessing you are then responsible for things like hide and bones and all the the parts that we don't eat on the cow so what is what happens to all
2: that stuff? So most customers will keep it actually. I charge to hold it off, so in lieu of saving hundred dollars, most of my clients will. Um, you know, they'll haul it off or they'll feed it to whatever they want to feed it to. I have a lot of clients that, you know, keep the heads and the hides and do that. Um, I think I have a very specific clientele, like the people hiring me, um, uh, they want to use as much of the animal as possible. And so, which is really awesome, you know, worst case scenario, they're using it for coyote hunting the next night or something. But, um, yeah, most, most people handle that. If I do have to haul it off, it just gets, it just gets thrown away for the most part, composted, thrown away, uh, reused in the most legal way possible. If I do feed it to my pigs, it has to be cooked. Um, and so the pigs do eat a lot of lard because that doesn't have to be cooked. So my pigs enjoy tallow and lard on a regular basis and I will give them organ meats. Um, but I'm a little careful about feeding them off just unless I'm super comfortable with the animal Um that it's coming from, you know, because diseases are real. Yeah, that's fair. So I know that you, you said
1: you offer beekeeping classes, but you also do some butchery classes and you also have lots of info online. So if someone is thinking about the idea of processing one of their own animals, what are some key things that they should keep in the back of their mind or in the front of their mind? Where, where do they start so that they don't get into something and then realize, you know, they've gotten in over their heads and don't know what to do next
2: yeah if you can if you can take a hands-on class or you know again like in person hands-on be there when someone else does their animal so that you have an idea because i think a lot of people think that they're just going to go outside and they're going to shoot this animal and it's going to go super smooth and um, they're going to be done in a few hours but the reality is like if you were to butcher your own pig, it's probably going to take you several days and you're going to need to invest in a lot of equipment that like if you want ground pork, you're going to have to have a grinder. Um, there's no way around that. And a grinder is going to cost you five, six hundred bucks minimum unless you go with something like super labor intensive um, manual. But yeah, I would recommend going and seeing that process. There's some great books. Um in fact, there's one, and I wish I had it on me right now. I would, I'll send you the link so you can put it in the in the notes. But there's one really great book with like some great pictures in it. But and that's a great refresher course. so you need to see it in person. Um, and, and the most important thing to remember about butchering yeah. is the dispatch is the most important part. So I know a lot of guys, they're just like, oh, this is what I got. I got a nine millimeter. Okay, well, you need to look into that a little further you need to make sure you're using the right caliber gun because there are people who have died from ricocheted bullets off of, the, off of a pig's head. So safety, safety, safety is so important. This job is so incredibly dangerous. Just doing it in your backyard by something as slight as like not thinking about your caliber gun. Make sure you're using a proper, proper caliber gun on your animal. And then you can fuck up anything you want after that. True. True. If you you know, nick the guts, you can fix that. You can literally fix anything. If you put a bunch of, you know, cut marks in your hands, you can grind the whole thing and make sausage out of it. It's all still edible. You can you can definitely fix anything after that dispatch. So that's the most important part. And I stress that to everybody in all of my classes. And a lot of times people will take my class and they leave that class saying, you know, "Mm, not cut out for this. I'm definitely not cut out for this. And a lot of times people raise animals that they have every intention of butchering and then they find out down the line like, oh, I don't think I can go out there and cut Porky's throat. You know, Um, now you've got your four-year-old crying and screaming. You just, you'd be surprised. Always have a backup plan. That's my advice.
0: Yeah, those are good points to keep in mind for sure. So that leads real well into our next question. Um, And what a great opportunity for people to, I don't want to say practice on your animals, but if you can't do it to somebody else's animal, you're not going to be able to do it to your own. And better to find that out when there's somebody who can do it than, yeah, when you've got screaming children in your yard. Um, So for those of us who do have children and livestock um, you know we home process some of our animals what are your thoughts on how to get kids involved even if it's just a discussion of the fact that meat does come from animals I mean I'm I'm still not sure my kids really get it and they're five and six and they live on a, a meat farm um, so how can we even for adults to be honest really have that discussion about where their food's coming from
2: I love this question. This is a great question. So kids are so much more resilient and understanding and know so much more than we give them credit for. And I think the best thing you can do is be honest and like be completely truthful about where the meat comes from. And most kids are not gonna have probably as big of a reaction as you think. At least that's been my experience. Now, granted, my experience is with like homesteading kids and farm kids um and it's really fun for me this is actually the most rewarding part of my job right here is i get to go to these people's homes and very often they're homeschool kids and butcher day is some sort of an anatomy class if you will and i'll give you an example something that happened recently that just made me so so happy um And I want to preface this by saying I never force a kid to be involved or watch this process if they do not want to be involved. If they don't want to watch it, don't force them to. They will just hate you for it. But this family, they have six kids. and I went out there, probably it was not long after I opened. It was like July last year. And I did a couple pigs. And one of the kids in particular was really interested in the process. Like He was kind of geeking out on it, which I love. I'm like. I'll feed into this as much as possible. And so one of the, you know, things that's fun to show the kids is, you know, all the different organs and um, especially in pigs, because it's very similar to humans, actually. And like their digestive system is almost the same as ours. So I'm showing them, you know, the intestines and the heart and I showed them the liver. And I said, you know, do you see this dark color of this liver? You know, that means it was healthy. Like you have a nice, healthy pig here. Okay, fast forward nine months, I go back to the same property and the same little boy comes out and he's telling me he wants to be a butcher when he grows up and I'm like choking back tears. I'm like, oh, stop it. And I start gutting this pig for him because again, it was just another round of pigs for him and the liver comes out and he immediately knows what it is and he immediately remembers you know, he's like, oh, that's the right color. It was That means it's healthy. And I've looked at him and I'm just like, holy crap, this kid, he might be eight years old. I'm not even joking, eight, nine years old. He just retained this tiny little nugget of information and got excited about it, you know, and now he's thinking about being a butcher when he grows up because he was, because he saw the process and like how so many of us would have a different relationship with our food or have a different, more realistic um relationship with our food if we had seen that process at a young age like it wouldn't be so shocking to people if they understood where their food came from if they you know okay well we raised a pig this is where your bacon comes from i think that's the easiest way to show kids where their food comes from is to raise it you know i'm not saying everybody has the means to raise their own animals but um you know or buying from a farmer I think that's a great way to do it. But kids are so much more resilient. And one of my favorite things, like one of my friends is a butcher and he's, I don't have kids, so I have to live through everyone else's children. Um, And, you know, they had to put down a pig recently and he told this story on a podcast I was on. And they, his daughter has the most amazing concept of death. Like she has this, total realization and respect for it and she's like two you know they put down this pig and she said it's okay i'll still love him even though he's gone he's just not here anymore i can still love him from from here and i'm like oh my god this kid is two and she's like beyond most adults as far as you know death because most most adults were scared of it right like it's it's this big scary thing well, does it have to be you know i mean i i face it every single day that's my first task of the day um you you just and and most people that hire me they think it's going to be this big violent thing and it's it's actually the opposite like the feeling of butcher day is you know of course it's bittersweet um but it's actually very calm it's just it's very tranquil and by the end of the day we're all just feeling very grateful and putting all this meat in our feed, you know, this healthy, high quality, you know, loved animal in our freezer that's going to go to nourish our family. And so um, it's a very different feeling. I think people, I think everyone should have to see that process. I say have to, again, I don't think you should force people. I think everyone should see the process at least once Um, and in person, you know, done by like a loving Situation I don't I don't want people going to a slaughterhouse the first time they see it they're gonna not have a great experience that way but doing on farm slaughter completely different experience and I think um, kids can really really gain from this and like not to just rant too long here but I actually have a program for 4-H and FFA programs where if you have you provide the animal um I will butcher that animal for a butcher cost, and then I will do a class for your entire chapter for free. So that's how much I believe in, like, teaching kids about butchering at a young age. Because if you're going to eat meat and you want to be completely blind to it, that's that's your decision. But there's there's a whole classification of kids out there who don't. So... And I think there was one day the, the most kids I had through there was like, I had 75 kids walking in and out of this trailer, making sausage, cutting pork chops, like, um, you know, in the safest way possible. And I had the boys skinning pigs, you know, early on in the day. And we, we just had a blast. And I think that's something like that's going to be a core memory for some of these kids. Um, they're going to look back and they go, yeah, we once saw a pig butchered, you know. Um, and they ended up actually having like a really good time doing it.
1: That's an amazing program, yeah, to to really show people what it is that we're eating when we eat meat, right? Like to be be upfront about it. And and like we said at the beginning, I mean, if people don't want to eat meat, then that's their choice. And I think that that's a valid choice, you know, for for people who, I mean, someone might go through that process and decide that it's not for them. And that's also okay, right? Because then you're still making an informed choice to be like, I saw the process and it wasn't for me and it's not something that I want to do, but yeah, you're being honest with yourself about what you're consuming and why.
2: Right. And for those kids, isn't that like the ultimate goal for those FFA and 4-H projects? They're raising those animals for meat and to see that whole process through to the very end, you know, instead of, instead of walking a trail of tears, that's what we call it, you know, um, to the, uh, the, the sale truck, And taking a hundred dollar check, you know, isn't it more valuable to put all, you know, put 200 pounds of meat in your freezer. And, you know, then those kids, they, like I said, they see that whole process through and then they get the reward, which is to eat it, um, you know, and there's really nothing better than some homegrown bacon, some homegrown sausage, like
0: that's
2: hard to deny,
0: I think, too, is, you know, as a meat producer, our goal is so much for them to have one bad day is, you know, is our goal because we don't process most of ours, ourselves, because we're not set up for it, but I think so much if people can be exposed to it in a, you know, where a kid comes out and a calm, competent adult is doing a calm, competent task of putting an animal down and processing it versus, you know, when... Because I feel like everybody who's ever processed more than one or two animals has had a time that everything went wrong and it was a shit show. And probably most people at that point have questioned if they're going to be vegans from now on because they're never going to be able to do this again. You know, if that's a kid's first exposure to processing and to death, that's not good. And I think maybe the only thing worse is to never talk to them about it at all. But for them to see it is just the natural extension of, you know, if you're not going to just chase that cow around with a fork, it has to die. That's just, if you're going to eat meat, something has to die. And to be able to showcase that in a very calm, rational, as pleasant as possible, considering that something's going to die away. But if you can come to the pasture and do it, How much less stressful that's got to even be on an animal than being trailered to a processing facility, which is still pretty, pretty damn chill at any decent processor, you know. But how much better to be able to just do it and, you know, have that over with. Most little kids are pretty gross. Like the the kids I processed birds with, you know, the adults are all like, these kids are gonna freak. You know, it's like a bunch of I worked on a farm where we had a lot of school groups coming through and we had a whole group of like eight and nine year old Girl Scouts on chicken processing day. And all the adults are like, oh, my God, they're going to they're going to lose it. They're, you know, freaking out. And these little girls are like they're picking up the feet, you know, and there's like a ligament you can pull and it makes the feet go. You know, and all these kids are chasing each other around with chicken feet, making a little claws dance. And all the adults are just horrified that this is turned into like, you know, straight up Lord of the Flies shit with these kids. And I'm like, kids are, kids get death. They get it. You just have to make it a normal thing because it is a normal thing. It's adults
2: that put all of that on it. You know, it's the yeah. adults that are teaching these kids all of these negative things around it. Right. That's not something that they, that's, it's all learned behavior. It's all learned concepts. So, um, I was going to say, don't leave your kids alone with me because I will too also have them, um, taking straws into lungs and blowing up the lungs. And eyeballs are bouncy balls, by the way, in case you've ever wondered. Um, I started harvesting Good to know.
0: So you're that person who's going to prank one by leaning on a chicken and making it squawk after you cut its head off? You're that person, aren't you?
2: Oh, no, I'm the one that goes, watch this. This is the coolest thing ever. I won't prank them to be mean. Yeah, they
0: know what's coming. Yeah, you
1: know what's coming. They
0: don't. Have you considered starting a summer camp? Because I'll be sending my kids.
2: Yeah, no, kids, kids love it. I mean, it's such a learning experience. And Like if you make it a learning experience and there are ways to present it differently than, yep, we just cut it. We kill it and we cut it and we wrap it, you know? No, there's, there's a, there's a finesse we do. They're so into it if you present it the right way. Um, and you know, on top of that, you can teach them about just general anatomy. Like I said, you know, I'm showing them livers. We're showing hearts, um, I do pull the brains out for these kids, you know, got like I saw their head open, but then I pull the brains out. And they're like, this is the coolest thing ever. Um, so, yeah, be careful if you leave your kids alone with me. I'm probably either going to put them to work or they're going to be playing with uh, various organ meat.
1: Yeah, body body parts. Put away your toys when you're done with them.
2: Oh, yeah. They love it, though. So this is
1: kind of an awkward segue, but since we're talking about body parts, I'm, from watching your videos, I know that being a butcher is a really physically demanding job. So how do you take care of yourself while doing this work?
2: That's the wrong question for today. As I'm, like, leaning on a heating (laughs) pad, um, I don't even know what I did, but I threw my neck out a little bit. Um, Honestly, I think I just slept wrong, which just goes to show what happens when you get older um i see a chiropractor and a massage therapist for a 90 minute massage once a week and if i miss that massage it's not gonna be a good week it's not going be a good week um i am about 130 pounds soaking wet so and i think most people are really shocked when i first show up i pull this like 52 foot rig and then i just step out and I don't I work solo, not just for bee removals, but also butchering, you know, and they look at me and they're like, where's your help? You know, and I just giggle. I'll be like, I mean, I've got an extra apron if you want to put one on. But, um, you know, it's it is very physically demanding and it's something like. Lifting quarters onto band saws and lifting, if you can't lift a hundred pounds, don't become a butcher. Um, you know, I have a lot of machinery that I've designed to make the job as easy as possible. You know, as little lifting as possible, there are some things that are just unavoidable. Um, and I did that because I am already fused in my lower back. I've got a two level fusion, um, in my, L4, L5, L5, S1, and and that's why I started skinning upwards, you know, and that's that's the thing that I'll say about it as well. It's like continuously finding ways to make it easier for yourself. You know, yes, take care of yourself, but also like there are ways we have th- this is 2023. Technology is not lacking. Um, granted, you know, this is like the oldest skill set of all time you know there is no way of getting around that you're going to probably screw up your hands and your wrists over time that's probably going to be a that's that's going to happen um you know learning to use like a meat hook in your left hand instead of using your hands and doing that tight grip all the time that's going to save your hand learning to wear a cut glove which is something i should learn to do um <laughs> because i slipped my wrist one time you know there's but there's all these different things like using winches as much as possible. And that's why I started adding more throughout the trailer. Um, you know, when I first started, I was just picking up quarters of meat and throwing them on the table. Okay, well, a quarter of could be 500 pounds. That's really stupid. I was like, why don't I have something to make that easier? You know, and so I've been designing this, you know, there's no other trailer like this in the country and I had nothing to compare it to, but as I'm going along, I like to remember and remind myself that there are no rules here. That's just my rules. You know, we got to abide by granted state rules or whatever. Um, but beyond that, it's it doesn't have to be done the way they do it in a butcher shop. I don't have to do it their way. I'm going to do it my way. And so I think there's, I put myself, I really limited myself in the beginning because I was like, oh, I was really treating it like a traditional butcher shop. Well, this is how they do it in a butcher shop. They just, you know, they just throw it over their shoulder. Well, I don't have to do that. That's dumb. That's how people get hurt. Yeah, that's right. No one's
1: going to give you a prize for lifting (laughs) all the heavy things and hurting yourself.
2: And I continuously, I try to use that mindset in farming too. Like if it's not working for you, change it. Like if that breed of animal is not working for you, get rid of it. Start over. Like don't be scared to start over. Um, but I think that's really where being like a first generation farmer and being first generation butcher and all these things has freed me to think that way. That's that's how it even, you know, even began as a mobile butcher shop, because if I would have had if I was a fifth generation butcher, I would tell you, oh, that can't be done. You have to hang the animal. Well, no, I'm not that person. I'm first generation. I'm like, well, let's think of let's let's find a better way to do that.
0: It's something we've talked about before, too, is how much power there is in being underestimated and in not knowing better yourself about what you're doing. You know, the the number of things I've done that have worked because I didn't know they they weren't supposed to work is a lot. And I think there's a lot of power in people underestimating you because the worst that's going to happen is they'll be right you know, the worst that's going to happen is that they'll say, I told her that was a stupid idea and it was a stupid idea. And then they'll feel good about it. And, you know, there's there's some gift in being able to make other people feel good about themselves. And the best that's going to happen is that it'll work. And they'll say, I told her that would work, you know, because they always change their story later about what they said was going to happen. You know, so either way, there's there's a lot to be said for that. And it is... When you're the first generation doing something, there's no four generations of your family standing there going, don't screw it up, because you're the only one you're letting down, so who cares?
2: Yeah, no, my family very much doesn't like the agricultural part of my life, and so that did become fuel to my fire. Um, And the number of people that told me that this would never work, it would never be successful, I would never get beef business... For the year and seven months it took me to build it it just kept fueling me you know that just fuels me people don't realize you know like that woman shutting down my poultry processing for other people she doesn't realize like that was just that was just inspiration like thank you um you know the reason i started the segue from chickens to pigs that we didn't even talk about you know was that i took i had two pigs slaughtered here on my farm because i believed in that even back then and then they took them back and butchered them at their shop. I got back two whole pigs that were completely inedible. And I don't even to this day know why. And he even charged me what I charge now, ironically. So I, I just have this disease where people tell me, like, something can't be done, you know, and um, and so then I have to do it it's just, you have to. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of those people, all that negativity, it only existed until it was, it was up and running. And, and the funny thing was I had a waiting list of people before I got started. And now I'm booked out for the end of the year, you know, and I have a year and a half of clients that will prove to you, like, you don't have to hang your beef. You can wet age your own beef. And, uh, I have, there's enough distrust in other butchers. You know, the biggest complaint is like, I didn't get my beef back or I didn't get all of my beef back. And my process is...
0: That's what I was thinking is when you do it, you're... Yeah, it's... You're damn sure that the beef you're getting is the beef you brought in.
2: It's like 100%, no jokes aside. It's very transparent. And that goes both ways too. Like if there was something wrong with your animal... Which occasionally happens, you know, I did a couple of lambs recently that had that um, that thyroid disease, I forget the name of it right now, but it, the beauty of that is I can also look at that client and go, hey, come here, look at this, and there's no question, I didn't just call you on the phone and say, hey, you know, they were inedible, um, you knew that that was your animal, it still has the hide on, you know, and I'm showing you all this, so there's there's a hundred like benefits to doing mobile slaughter but when i was building it i mean to tell you everybody had something negative to say i had people telling me that it wasn't even legal to do uh, you know but then once you're open it's like the tune changes all of a sudden i have a hundred dudes telling me that they had the idea first like you guys are so predictable <laughs> in every way yeah. And, but people don't want to see you succeed, you know, you know, there's, there's just a small circle of people that really want to see you succeed. Most people, um, anyone that's given you shit about what you're doing is not doing what you're doing. First of all, they're probably doing less, you know, I don't take criticism from those people. I just take it and I wrap it up and I put it in a fuel for, for later, put it in a fire for later. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm not done yet. Like, this is just the beginning. Like, these, uh, the, the haters feel free to keep following me because we're just, I have so many plans. Big, big plans. That carrot butchering is not going to be one little mobile unit. We've, I've got plans immediately to do a wild gang shop and a taxidermy shop and then. From there, I want to build another mobile unit for expos and teaching to take around the country and teach more kids and teach, because that's the most fulfilling thing for me as the children. Um, but then, just for all the reasons, you know, once we get past some legal stuff, I can start doing more of that. And then, um, beyond that, I have some ideas that are a little controversial for some rendering plans, but we've got to change some laws first. Just a couple logs, no big deal. We'll definitely be checking back in with you
1: then to see what other things people have told you you couldn't do so we can- (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. see See the results of that. So I think, I mean, I'm sure that we could talk all day but we're gonna start to wind down just because I don't want the episode to be like two and a half hours long. So you mentioned in your bio that you were in bartending before and I wanted to ask what is your favorite cocktail to make? As we uh, segue, yeah, uh, um, one for yourself and for other people.
2: OK, the one for other people is the one that makes me the most money. So <laughs> yeah, that makes it. Yeah, that's always the answer to that question. Um, you know, I used to sell twenty five hundred dollar bottles of wine. That was my favorite thing to sell because I would get to drink the glass.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's I will take. Yeah, I'll take the cork out and <laughs> you can
2: give me the money. I'll take a sample. Yeah, I, they would always let me sample it. Um, but at home, and at home, honestly, I am much I'm more of a wine drinker, but um, French 75 is my go-to cocktail. A little gin, little Rose's Lime, triple sec. A we'll little top off with some champagne, lemon twist. They're so good. They're so underrated. And that's a drink that you can, like, order anywhere. And regardless of how it's made... Um, uh, it's it's always good. Like every variation of it, for the most part, unless it's just really really sweet, um,
0: almost every variation of that feels good. It's a win.
2: That's a good one to keep in mind.
0: Best cocktail I've ever had was in Oklahoma, actually. So, um, Tiffany, we ask all of our guests if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And you can do a real category or make one up.
2: Oh, I got. I probably have a couple. Uh, Queen spotting. Queen spotting. Um, I worked commercially for beekeepers all across the country. And this one beekeeper wanted every queen that he owned in every hive to be marked with a marker. So one day I went through 1,200 beehives. And I found every freaking queen in every freaking beehive. And I marked every freaking one. Wow. And so ever since then, it's like... It's what made me so good at bee removals, though. Like, it was such a gnarly task at the time, but I'm so thankful for that. Um, So, yeah, queen spotting and probably hot cutting because that's the other thing is people don't cut meat hot. They cut meat frozen. So I kind of have a leg up on everybody. I've been doing it for a year and a half. Anyone who's doing pot cutting, they did it like once a year, you know? Yeah.
1: Those would be uh, some categories that I feel like you wouldn't have a whole lot of competition in, but uh, you're obviously a pro too. I'm just picturing, you know, whenever I go to like the fair, or sometimes at museums or something, they have those displays with the bees and you have to find the queen and I could never find her.
2: (laughs) Usually they're marked too. Yeah, Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's the worst part. They usually have like a little thing on them. Whenever we would do that I would point them out for people so they could find them. Yeah.
0: And I was picturing it as being like a three part where it's Waldo with like queen bees, drag queens and queens of England. Like I don't know, I don't know how this would work but I could picture I could find them all. I would watch that definitely. I would watch that.
1: All the
2: queens. 100%.
1: So we'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. As listeners know, you can send in your cussing and discussing entries. If you want to hear them on the show, call our speak pipe, go to the show notes, and the link is there, or you can send us an email, and Katie and I will read them out for you in whatever accent we so choose. Uh, Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week?
0: Getting uh, stupid repetitive motion injuries from stupid things that you like doing. From hobbies. It's dumb. I should be able to just enjoy my hobby. Instead, I've gotten trigger finger in my middle finger on my dominant hand from crocheting (laughs) too much. And it's like, the oldest old people injury, like, I got hurt crocheting. Crocheting. (laughs) It's embarrassing. Okay, yeah. and it's my middle finger, so if I immobilize the damn thing, it just looks like I'm flipping people off.
1: I was. Wonder- I don't know much about sugar finger, but I was wondering if it made it easier or harder to give people the finger.
0: Um, harder, because if I bend my finger, I literally now have to take my other hand and straighten my finger back out, because the tendons are locking up, and then I can't move my finger. Thankfully, it's not super painful, but it's just... I hurt myself crocheting and since I'm crocheting to deal with anxiety and h- having an injury just makes me more anxious, it's really not working out well for me. So that's that.
1: Yeah, that,
0: that's a bad combination.
1: Plus it helps you concentrate when you're trying to record a podcast. Or in work meetings because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not as exciting as this conversation for sure. They don't talk about brains ever, I bet.
0: Sometimes, but not usually about cutting heads open to look at them, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Tiffany, what do you have to cuss and discuss? I feel like you could have all sorts of interesting things. I uh, have
2: so many. We're all so many. Um, first of all, don't feel bad because my neck hurts because I slept wrong, pretty sure. Something I've done
0: my whole life. You're old,
1: sorry. We've all been there.
2: Oh, man. Okay. Um, like, pick a category, you know what I mean? that's where we're at. Uh, one of my biggest complaints, we'll, we'll go backyard butchery themed, um, is dudes wanting to do the kill shot. I am sick and tired of telling these men no and then they get mad at me and uh, you know, I've got a situation, this guy this guy told me that the reason he wanted to do the kill shot is because he thought that um, it was a man's job.
0: The fuck? The actual fuck.
2: Yeah. <laughs> his whole reason he and he goes on to say how
1: so so he's okay with you cutting it up and skinning it and doing all the work but he he wants to, yeah exactly and does he also want to save for a little bit of money is that part of it too
2: oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he's old-fashioned is what he says he says i'm old-fashioned
1: oh right he's trying to be trying to be uh noble yeah
2: but this comes up like this comes up so regularly that I changed my kill fee to say slaughter fee, and then I wrote not optional next to it and um, I had a guy just recently um that I went to butcher a couple of animals for, and the very first thing he says to me like he just assumes that he could do it oh yeah I can I'm like what butcher shop anywhere allows you to bring in a dead animal or go behind their you know go back to their facilities and shoot your animals that's never gonna happen and but you think that because I come to you that that's a different situation. Okay, that's fine. So I tell him now, and he's like, well, what are you going to do if I do it? And I was
1: like, turn around, I'm going home. They're have a nice day off. Oh, uh, yeah, I can pull right on out. I'm in a truck. This is the easiest thing for me to do. I start the truck, and I drive out.
2: No, it gets better. And then as I'm skinning this animal, he proceeds to tell me, and I have witnesses to this conversation, proceeds to tell me that, oh, yeah, you know, the last one we did, took four shots and it was still alive so they had to go get their tractor and run over its head with a tractor uh, no and i'm like and i'm literally
0: i assume he's not on the repeat customer list
2: right exactly i looked at this man dead in the eye and i said and you fucking wonder why i do not allow people to do the kill shot like if someone's gonna fuck it up let it be me Let it be me, and then I can deal with those consequences. If you're going to screw it up, and then I have to deal with your consequences because you wanted to save a $100 kill fee, no thank you. No thank you. Um, And it's always men. Not one woman has ever, not once, questioned my kill fee, complained about it. Mm -mm.
0: Nope. I have to say, too, I don't know any woman stupid enough to brag about fucking up that badly. I mean, everybody has bad days. But four shots and then you had to run the damn thing over. yeah
2: what's oh, that story a uh, dune
0: in order to in
1: order to prove the point that they should be allowed to kill the animal instead of you a professional
2: right you know and I'm not saying that every shot goes down one time like occasionally it takes a, you know it takes a double tap
1: but but you have the right tools for the job.
2: yeah, I' I don't I have seen bullets ricochet you know I'm I know that I'm using the right caliber gun. Um, I know that I know where to place that bullet. You know, I'm not going to rely on you. What, what do you want me to sit there and coach you through the most important part of my day? Absolutely not. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and again, if it goes badly, then it's on me. It's not on you. You can at least go inside the house and avoid it if you want to. And then I can deal with it. Um, cause again, you just raised this animal for what? Six months, a year, two years, maybe. How are you going to feel Whenever you hit that animal
0: and it doesn't go down, like
2: you're, never might mess you up a
0: little bit. I watched somebody else ineffectively put down an animal that I had raised, and it was it was a complete freak accident. It was not that they didn't know what they were doing, but it was one of the worst experiences of my life. And who the fuck has a tractor and doesn't just think I could hoist it and slit its throat or slit its throat on the ground?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I had so many questions to that situation. Like how much time passed between four shots and let's go get the tractor? Like how long was that animal lying on the ground? Most likely, which at that point I agree with you, I would have slit its throat. And I guess at that point we just call it kosher death, you know, as much as I dislike them, at least it's quicker than going and finding the tractor key. And you know, what happens if the tractor hadn't started how often does that happen? I mean, we're we're familiar with farms. Every farm I go to has at least one broken tractor.
1: <laughs> yeah, and potentially if they if they were planning to process it themselves, they were ready to hoist it up anyway, probably right yeah. to drain That's it. True. So, yeah, just go ahead and do that step. Ugh.
0: Yeah, yuck. I have to say though, I really want to know what the ratio of truck nuts to guys who want to shoot their own animals is because I feel like that's a circle of a fucking Venn diagram I feel like I would anticipate truck nuts from any guy who's like oh, it's a man's job is it truck nuts Arlene okay I didn't know what I was gonna
1: cuss and discuss today Katie but there we just segued into mine truck nuts I hate them I hate them I hate them yeah no And then I saw online the other day they have like nuts you can put on the back of your Crocs, which I don't know what the Venn diagram is for that, but that's just
0: nasty.
2: Oh my gosh, I should get my truck some nuts and paint them
0: (laughs) They should just be like peanuts or something now. Just like...
2: (laughs) They could be like spray. No, I want to make them huge. I'm going to make giant. I want the biggest ones they make. And I want like glitter. (laughs) Glitter and pink.
0: No, you should have truck boobs. (laughs) Or ovaries. Just a big old pair of ovaries hanging off i would hire you so goddamn <laughs> fast a sparkly pink uterus there you go
2: that should be my next t-shirt i'm about to do a contest for my next t-shirt we should definitely that could be in the
0: it should look like a cow horn but it should be a uterus like a cow's head but also a uterus i buy the shit out of that i
2: actually built my logo so that it wouldn't look feminine because my first logo for freeland farms my bee removal and poultry business was very feminine. And I was like, no, don't make it feminine. And because sometimes people call me and they think I'm the secretary. And then it's just a surprise when I show up, you know, if they if they don't have any. Sometimes they don't interact on my social medias. You know, a lot of people still don't do social media. Or maybe they don't follow me specifically. So they don't see it. Um, you know, and so I kind of use that to my advantage. But it is fun to mess with men when I get there. And I do use it because it's the only thing. I get to use it to my advantage is, is in the jokes and the marketing online and I'm about to do like a Halloween photo shoot and the trailer as a prop. And there's going to be some hilarious, hilarious photos you guys got to look out for. It's going to be so much fun. I oh. can't wait. Yeah. I don't get to use my, is, like, don't get to use my being a female to my advantage in the agricultural space, like, ever, so.
0: I'm going to go ahead and say the horrible thing I was thinking about earlier when you said your hoist was only 11 feet. Did he tell you it was 12 and it was just only 11? Because I feel like somebody told you it was 12.
2: <laughs> no, I specifically asked for 12, and it was just, it ended up being... um I don't know. Just for some reason, we couldn't get twelve feet to to happen. This happens to every
0: man, Tiffany. You just got to accept it.
2: I know it does. And but here's the thing: is it really isn't eleven feet? It's really ten because you lose a foot to the gambrel and the scale. Oh,
1: shrinkage.
2: So it kind of is boy math. <laughs> yeah. It is boy math. Um, it's eleven feet, but it's actually ten.
0: Funny story. <laughs> Maybe it looks bigger in pictures. <laughs> yeah, <maybe. laughs> anyway, Ar- Arlene, did you have anything else to cuss and discuss today?
1: No, now that I, we talked about truck nuts, I'm good. I hate those fuckers. <laughs> and I don't often cuss in the cuss Fucking and discuss segment. Truck nuts. <laughs> for a minute, I didn't know what she
2: was talking about. I had to like edge up for a second.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Tiffany, for joining us today. Um, you already mentioned that you're on all the socials. So where should people find you if they want to... Uh learn about butchery bees and everything else that you want to want to teach us
2: yeah so on all of my accounts I'm on probably Facebook and TikTok the most I also have Instagram I just don't use it very often um, it's going to be at backyard butchery with a y at the end and then at free land farms that's plural spelt just like it sounds those are my two accounts. Um, the bees are most, I mean, the butcher account is just the, the mobile butcher shop. I don't like to cross post too much there. Um, all of the honeybee content and my farm content is going to be on Freeland Farms.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much. It
2: was great meeting you. It was so much fun. Thanks for having
0: me. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com's backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show.
1: Please rate and review the podcast
0: and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group.
1: We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch.